It might hit a certain demographic, though. <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure what that demographic is. <laughs> um, I mean, nature lovers. Um, <laughs> well, I just think uh, let's start off with welcome Bethany from arrived uh wes and i both sort of big fans of the show thank you for having us on your show and welcome to the modern dandy thank you so much for inviting me onto the show guys it's it was so fun chatting with the both of you and i'm really excited to be here today and i think a really great place to start because we, we chatted quite a lot around the show when we were making your show and i know i really enjoyed it. i think wes we both really enjoyed that but for our listeners, what is Arrived? What is your podcast about? Arrived is, it's so interesting that the podcast wound up being called Arrived. I think it's its interesting. The show's only about 16 or 17 episodes in, but I, I feel like the title's really paying dividends already because I'm finding that the quote unquote definition of arrived and arriving is changing so much in it. And there's always something different that you know each of my guests brings to the show. But when I think of arriving and what it means to have arrived from the perspective of, let's say, the home, you know, being an interior designer, is coming home to a space, arriving home to your space, and feeling like there's nowhere else you'd rather be. That home supports you, it nurtures you after a long day at work or maybe traveling, or even after you get home from holiday and you feel wonderful, like, you're like oh, I can't wait actually to get back into my own bed. So arriving in that respect, but also when I think of arrival and I think about, you know, having arrived in one's life, it's about really getting to a point where you feel authentic in your lifestyle, you feel authentic in yourself, you sort of know who you are. And, you know, while this ebbs and flows, this aspect of one's identity and 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 respects to that, just really feeling a sense of confidence in who you are and how you're presenting yourself to the world. So I would say in a nutshell, that's really what Arrived is about. It's the twofold aspect of how can I feel like I've arrived within my own home? How does my home support and nurture me? And, and how can I feel like I'm bringing my best self into my life and feel like I've arrived in that respect? And I think that's great. And I think that's one of the reasons why, uh, for everyone that's listening, welcome to the Modern Dandy's Guide to Manliness. And what Bethany just described is one of the things that we've talked about a lot, which is for the modern man, you know, having a sense of self and a sense of, of engagement in your world and the way in which you choose the world that you live in is a really important thing. So, Bethany, thank you very much for joining us. And we're looking forward to We've got so many questions. I can't yeah. even begin to start with the number of questions we have. Absolutely. So I, th I think let's uh, let's just dive in. Yeah. What originally drew you to a career in interior design? Yeah, I think that, I mean, it starts out like, I mean, it's so cliched, like so many interior designers out there. But when I was a kid, I could be very extroverted and I love playing outside. I grew up in Minnesota and so I was outside whenever I could be. But then I would also retreat into my own room and could be very introverted from that respect. And that became those little four walls of my own room became really a space for me to, you know, design this inner life for myself, even I think when I was about eight years old. And so I always had a passion for just really thinking spatially and thinking about how is this one little space in my family's home, just my own? And how am I how am I growing in this literally, figuratively? I'm sure when I was eight, I wasn't thinking about it in those terms necessarily, but didn't actually study interior design for quite a while. Um, my undergraduate was not in interior design. And then I went back to art school, I should say twice, actually, to study interior design. And I dropped out twice. I really just was not convinced for quite a many, quite many years that interior design was what I wanted to, to be jumping into professionally. And I think it's because in design school, we were taught so much about the pragmatics. And I'm really interested in looking at design, I should say, from a holistic perspective and thinking about how are we, how are we thinking about our spaces? How are our spaces helping us grow and thrive and be better people? Um, I left art school and I wound up doing a master's in art history and, and that kind of scratched the itch a little bit more, I think, because you're, you're talking about those, those things a little bit more, I think, when you're talking about mm -hmm. curation and history of art and what was that artist feeling and what were they emoting and all of those, you know, wonderful EQ things that we, we talk about. 
So that was when I moved to, to Edinburgh in 2009 and then wound up actually working for a design studio down in London after I finished that program. And it was a wonderful experience. It was very tough. It was very much like Devil Wears Prada, but interior design world. But that really solidified for me that actually design is something that I did want to get involved in. And that's, I think, because mm-hmm. I watched this huge transformation of space. Um, I was very fortunate to work for a design studio called David Collins Studio, where the clients were, you know, very high, you know, had huge levels of investment, very high budget projects, lots of commercial, residential, and, you know, restaurant hospitality projects. And that was really interesting for me to just be a small part of for a while. And I think just solidified that actually this is what I I want to be doing. So I would say it was actually a bit of a meandering journey to get there. I think after, you know, a great many years of kind of figuring it out, as it were, I'm in my mid-30s now, it kind of solidified. And that's how I got into interior design. And that's great. I think it's fascinating. We're going to come back to, I think, some of your experiences abroad in a little bit. But when did you decide that you wanted to focus your efforts and your, you put your emphasis on young men, young single men, and, and men in general and their space? Yeah, that's such a great question. You know, it really came about rather organically. When I was living in London, I was living with someone. We were searching for a house together and bought the house, and then we split up. But I actually wound up, you know, so now he's the single guy, and I wound up actually helping him with the house. And Wound up then working with one of his friends. I think he was with McKinsey, I want to say, but I know he was traveling quite a bit between London and I think Cape Town, South Africa. I, I know that for sure. And and working with him, you know, he was just saying like, look, I, I have the money to invest in my space, but I don't really have the time and I don't have the energy and I don't have the the knowledge. So can you help me out? And so I started working with him. And then when I moved, when I moved sort of like down the street from that house that uh, my ex and I had purchased. I wound up working with my next door neighbor who is this single guy and he was, you know, looking for a relationship. And I started drawing these parallels of working with these single men that, you know, a lot of them were in this place in their lives where they were ready to invest or they were at that sort of, I think, professional level of success where they could invest in their spaces, but they just didn't have the time and they didn't really know how to do it. And weren't really thinking organically and holistically about how their space really shapes and informs not only, let's say, their professional life, like the way that they're showing up at work, but maybe the way that they're showing up in their interpersonal relationships. So I started drawing those connections. And once I started doing that, I really thought, you know, actually, there's something really to this. Like I'd mentioned, I was actually, I was very fortunate to work at some amazing studios in London. But when I worked at another studio a couple years on, I had noticed that while the level of investment in the projects was enormous and budgets were sky high and there really, you know, money was no object, what was interesting to me about working in these larger studios was that there was really no amount of money that you could throw at a project. If someone had something going on in their lives, you could craft or I could be on a team that would help craft the most beautiful space for these people. But if there was something that they hadn't solidified within themselves, there was just you know no amount of you know gorgeous house mm. that we could design to to aid their level of happiness and so when i started working with these men one on one and got to know them and you know developed you know a friendly client relationship is when i started kind of putting two and two together that actually yes this is what this is a more organic holistic experience it's not just about telling someone or or providing a coffee table and a couch and wallpaper and, and all of the sort of more surface things that we think about when we think about interior design. And on a level, it's what you guys are doing with the show too. You're helping guys come out of their shell, so to speak, and be able to talk about these things. For me, it was that's how I started getting into working with these guys was just actually being an ear as well as a designer, if that makes any sense. Uh, absolutely does. And I think one thing that really caught my attention there, because I think it's it's so relevant and very relevant to our show, but I think just to men in general, was you mentioned that their living space had an impact on their their social and their professional lives. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Because I think that's a fascinating point, and I think that's what some many men often often miss. They have a utilitarian space, 
and they miss the importance of going back to how you opened of they miss the importance of having a space that they enjoy being in mm-hmm. that actually nurtures their energy that is some place that they they feel comfortable and and at home as opposed to just a, a bed right. and four walls so that whole aspect of the professional and the social what were the kind of things that you would look for and and do to help men feel more comfortable your clients feel more comfortable in their space and and you know what are the things that you were you were seeing mm-hmm. results from in in helping them feel comfortable right that way? yes one of the things that i was actually just recalling when you were when you were speaking is sometimes i'd work with clients and this i would this would happen a lot with men that work in financial services and you know they might actually have a space that's quite general i mean it's 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 furnished it's set up but they something there was a disconnect and they weren't happy with their space and they weren't happy when they came home and i said well what's going on here and a lot of what i noticed um with these particular clients was there was this level of competition that was happening with maybe their colleagues or their friends. I mean, it's like we we joke about that American psycho, you know, scene where they're comparing the business cards. But I would actually witness some of this on a level with my <laughs> clients where it wasn't business cards, but it was like, oh, well, I have this, you know, I have this like bong and Olufsen stereo system and I'm going, yeah, but it looks ridiculous in this space. Is this really what mm-hmm. you want or is it because, you know, your mate told you that you should get it or you feel like you need to have this in your space, even though it's actually not supporting you and your unique lifestyle? So that's one thing that I would notice with guys. And then another thing that I would notice too sometimes is that you're right, like they would just come home to spaces that were really dull and empty and devoid of any real sense of personality. And, you know, I suppose for me as a designer, I think, well, how are how is one supposed to be able to craft their identity in their relationships with other people when the space that they're coming home to is very core and shell? It's maybe just a sofa and a coffee table. I mean as human beings, we're all very unique and we have unique facets to our character. So our homes should reflect that as well. So sometimes it's just about really helping guys craft a space that it doesn't feel like a competition. It feels welcoming and inviting and it feels like it is a reflection of their character and reflection of their interests, their personal interests on a level too. So it's not just this catalog that they thought that they should be quote unquote ordering from and fitting out the space in that regard. So many things you're saying, Bethany, I'm just, I'm like nodding my head. I'm like, yes, no, it makes so much sense. And I've lived through that phase of my life as well. Uh, When Mm -hmm. I was still in college, I had a bed and my parents' Bowflex machine and that right. was it. That's my furnishings. Uh, right. Kind of like our our uh, friend that we know from back home, Liam. Uh, but anyway, the uh, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't going to say his name. <laughs> hey, <laughs> Seth. Hey, 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 Seth, if you're listening, we still love we, you. We know a gentleman um, that um, fits that description, uh, just more of devoid of self-expression in, in a space. But mm-hmm. what I was going to ask as a, a follow-up is, why do you suppose that men have this kind of gap. What, what do you think really prevents uh, men from looking into this aspect or, or what brings about this uh, ignorance? Do you think? Such a great question. You know, I think that if we, so going back to me saying when I was a, when I was a kid that I would, I would spend hours in my space, uh, you know, thinking about how I could design it differently, or sometimes I'd move furniture around. And I think as a young girl doing that, it was considered absolutely fine. But I think if my brother did that, I think my, I don't know if my parents would, but I think a lot of parents would be going, why is our son doing that? Why is he thinking about this? So I think it comes down to when we think about nesting, and I know that we kind of mentioned this a little bit when you guys were on 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 my podcast was this aspect of nesting. And I just wonder if Men, generally speaking, and I hate to generalize here, but I'm going to do it. I think that sometimes men are just not <laughs> encouraged to think about their spaces as an extension of their lifestyle. So men are, of course, rewarded for having a beautiful timepiece or for having a gorgeous made-to-measure suit and putting time and effort and investment into those areas of their lives as it pertains to that sort of outward re- reflection and, and I would say character 
not peacocking, but just once, you know, thinking about mm. how can I express myself to the world? But I just don't think that so many men have been encouraged to think about their spaces in that regard, or the way that they're encouraged is for this from this kind of what I call like a radio shack mentality, where it's like, it's uh, I have this, you know, glass TV stand and I have this, you know, big black leather couch. And it's very much this, you know, quote unquote, bachelor pad, and it's sleek, and it's cold, and it doesn't really feel inviting. And, and so that kind of design is what's encouraged. And certainly when I on Reddit, sometimes I'll see that. And as a woman, I just kind of shake my head and go, oh, guys, you know, why, why are we not, why are we not encouraging guys to actually think a little bit more holistically about their spaces? I mean, that I think is something that, you know, is fascinating from, from my perspective. Like, were you guys encouraged as kids to really think about, you know, your spaces in the way that you guys would think about having a gorgeous bespoke suit, for example? I, I don't think I was, but I also wasn't prevented from thinking about my space. I sort of grew up mm-hmm. in a house that was fairly cluttered and you know, tripping over things, which is one reason I keep my place my my places uncluttered. I recognize that. I, I accept I accept the, the scars of my childhood and embrace them. But I think one of the points that I really liked was and we talked about it on your show as well, is that many men are under a sort of a peer pressure to impress mm-hmm. other men rather than create a place that's welcoming for friends and uh, you know, f- uh, women or you know, the, the people mm-hmm. that they're trying to attract is that you're really building a place that's, that conforms with a male peer pressure group is, is probably not, and, and if you're interested in women, that's probably not the right, right. right tack to take rather than creating a place that shows that you, you understand and, and will yes. welcome people into uh, a place that uh, shows that you understand that you it's not all about the electronics and so forth right. that does show a bit more personality. I sort of mangled that question, but uh, I'll, I'll throw it over for you to, to clean it up. <laughs> no, I, I, when I grew up, I did work through it. You know, when I was still living with my parents, you know, teenager years and, and kind of growing up, I, I do remember shopping with my mom for bedding mm-hmm. and I was like, no, I, I, I want to get, you know, I want to make my own choices, right. you know, about what's going to go into my room and, and, and things like that. And I had, you know, grown out of like, I want a race car bed. You know, I was old enough to know that I would be trying to invite people into my bedroom. Uh, again, mom, don't listen to any of this. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> uh, but I remember choosing, you know, I was like, no, no, I want these kinds of bookshelves and I want this kind of bedspread. I went with this. Now I didn't make good decisions, mind you. Uh, I absolutely needed your help, but I, I made decisions. They were just bad ones. So I had like this kind of green and purple, like paisley patterned thing and like dark green uh, sheets. And then, which I guess would have been okay. But then the bookshelves were like the white veneered, just, you know, stuff you'd find at any not Costco, but just, you know, just whatever, like Kmart or whatever your, your department store is nothing fancy, but it was just like, nothing went together at all. I was like, Oh, I like that. I'll just throw that in there. And eclectic would be a bit of an overstatement. So (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think that transitions nicely to a question about what are some of the worst tendencies you've seen amongst Men, your clients. <laughs> like Wes just gave you a nice list there. So, so some of the worst things that I've seen when with with guys who design their spaces. You know, for one thing, it might be like a sixty-inch television that's in a space that's you know a guy's living in New York City, for example, and their studio apartments maybe I don't know three hundred square feet, and you're kind of thinking like you can you know you can probably fry an egg from your bed. Like, do you really need a sixty-inch television? And, and maybe doing that's fine, or you know, maybe you want a, a large screen and that's fine, but you know, could you get a projector in there? And so when I think about that, it's like, does that really do like, so when you do entertain your friends, it, is that really something that are you really going to engage in great conversation or are you guys just going to sit there and stare at a television, for example? So I, I think sometimes like the oversized electronics, the other thing that I, I do sometimes notice these like lights that like change like all different colors, right? Like, for example, like someone might have a bar cart 
And maybe they've installed these little string lights that changed from like blue to pink to whatever under a bar cart. And and some, you like, I had a client do this once and he's like, isn't this cool? And I'm going, I, do you ever want to invite a woman around? Because no woman is going to think this is cool. Like your friends right? <laughs> <laughs> win that competition for like strangest bar cart. But, you know, sometimes I just, I think it's things like that. It's, it's actually not thinking about how your guests are going to feel when they enter your space, for example. So those I would say are, you know, there's no such thing as a design fail, really. I mean, if it makes him happy, then 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 it's a success. But I think it's it's generally speaking, those things that maybe actually almost alienate other people when they walk into your space, I would say are the are sort of the tendencies that I see mm. sometimes that I would I would gently try to remedy, shall we say, <laughs> with clients. I remember some of my female friends saying like the stuff that they looked for was if there wasn't a bookshelf, that was like a, a yellow flag, and depending on, on who it was, a red flag. If there was nothing on the walls and no personal photographs, it's like that right. that's going towards serial killer right. kind of American psycho territory. Um, you know, things that look transactional because they, they for them it was, well, this person mm-hmm. is is unsettled, mm-hmm. you know, this person is immature. And that was the message they were getting, no matter how mm-hmm. the age of the person or how much money they made. It was interesting for me talking with my female friends, and I, I, I always call upon my female friends for, for input. Uh, I don't necessarily take the input, but I always, I always ask them for input on things that I, I do in my life, everything from buying cars to like how mm-hmm. I set up my house and things like that, because it, it, it just, I think, provides a, a really interesting perspective. And I always learn something um, about my friends uh, and often their perspective of me in doing so. I think one of my favorites was towels um, and I mentioned that you know my place was once described as looking like a combination of a really expensive mm-hmm. hotel and a really expensive bar and I'd spent so much time in hotels that the only color towel that I liked was white and I had these white fluffy towels that I, I laundered regularly and one of my friends said I always like coming over here because you know, I, I know your towels are, are yes. clean and I said is that a thing <laughs> and she was like going, oh yeah it's just like I know guys mm-hmm. who have one towel I have one hand towel and one bath towel, and it spends most of its time on the floor. And my immediate reaction was basically a sense of nausea and like, ick, you know, how could someone who is the same age, the same professional Mm -hmm. background as me, the same income of me be so uh, gross? And, And again, it came back to that maturity where, I was looking to create an environment mm-hmm. that showed that I didn't need looking after. And a lot of guys yes, were sending the so message true. that they needed a mom. So true. Yeah. It's that, um, I mean, I won't speak too much from personal experience on that, but I, yeah, there, there was, I definitely had to kick a guy to the curb because he just made no space for me in his life. And it was things like that. It was like, I didn't have a clean towel. He didn't have proper bedding. He didn't have a duvet. He didn't, you know, there's, and it's, and it's not even necessarily something that when you, walk into someone's space. Like I love that Liam, you say this aspect of something being transactional. It's not even something that you would pick up on necessarily right away. Although a flat that looks very much like a teenage boy's room is yes, that's going to be a bit more conscious when you, when you walk in, but really just thinking about, yeah, is when you bring people over, are they going to feel like what you're really looking for is a mom? And if that's the case, it's like, we're out. It's, we're not going to last very long in a relationship, for example. And um, the aspect of being something being transactional, I love it. So like just, I mean, insofar as I love, I love that phrase actually, because when you see art on the wall, for example, and you might ask, oh, that's a beautiful piece. Where did you find it? They go, I don't know. I found it on Minted and it just looked cool. That feels transactional. It doesn't feel like someone's taken the time to really think about why does this piece affect me? Why did I invest in it? Why do I want to stare at it every single day? What's the story that I'm telling when I have guests over. So I think, yeah, those are really good points for sure. We did a show uh, last season where we talked about letting go of childish things and becoming, you know, the steps into becoming a man. Uh, One of the points that I think that that Josh made was, yes, you can keep things from your childhood and keep things from your past Mm -hmm. so long as they have a good story. If they're just things then they're probably easy or they or they don't bring with them a story or a good memory. They're probably good things to let go. And I think, as you were saying, I think a lot of people hold on to things because 
they've always had them around and not really thought about mm-hmm. the impression that leaves on on others or whether it actually still suits right. them and, and their life. It comes back to intention though, doesn't it? I mean, this is really one of our foundations of self-expression, uh, self-expression. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> self-expression <laughs> where, cause I'm, I'm listening to us talk and I'm listening to it go over all these points. And we're talking about creating a space that is very welcoming. It's for someone who is trying to create uh, an area that showcases that they are open, that they want to bring people in. And I, I'm just kind of devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. If, if someone doesn't mm-hmm. want to do that, mm-hmm. If they want to create a space that is very safe and secure and, and uninviting, I, mean, I suppose they can do that, but it comes down to intention. Right. What is your intention? Have you thought about the message that you want to convey? And I think right. that's where most people fail is that, and, and like you were saying, Liam, they don't think about it. They just are reactionary. They watch a commercial and they go, oh, look, a big TV. Right. I want a big TV. Or, you know, I want an Audi. Right. You, know, it, you know, they're not thinking about what it means to their personality. Mm-hmm. So just throwing that in there that even if what we're saying right now about style choices that Liam and I might make for our homes, you don't have to agree with how we would do it, but just to put the thought in, that's something I wanted to make sure that was clear. Mm. And it is, I mean, I've gone through several iterations of my own personal style is that I started off it being mm-hmm. much more bachelor patty, uh, that then I got smacked around the head by my female friends and I softened it. And I, and I kept that sort of uh, style for a while. I've, I've obviously been in long-term relationships where we had uh, variations on a more homely style. It always tends to be contemporary. Uh, at one point when I was younger, I did try the nesting thing because I was keen on getting married and having a family. And, and therefore, I was wanting to broadcast those vibes. And then 15 years later, I'm, I'm building the layer of seduction, which was carefully engineered to to basically tell people I'm actually really expensive. Mm-hmm. I'm not rich, I'm expensive. I put a lot of thought into into that in the same way that I put into how I dress and speak and where I go and things like that. And I think partly that's because I'd spent so long in the UK, which is very formative for me. So Bethany, one of the things is like, what are some of the real differences you see having yourself spent a lot of time mm-hmm. in the UK, both right. Edinburgh and London, between American men and their British counterparts. Yes. Big differences. I'm sure you're aware. I'm sure you guys are both aware. I, you know, <laughs> I, from the, from, I suppose the, the most, you know, basic surface thing. I, one thing I noticed, one thing I should say, I, I noticed when I moved over to the UK to London was that men would wear these suits that actually fit them really well. <laughs> you know, they, they they weren't two sizes too big. They looked well tailored. Guys were wearing pink and they weren't afraid to wear pink. I mean, I think, you know, you still kind of have to be on the coasts. So I, I live in Minneapolis now and I don't, I don't really walk down the street very often and see a guy who's wearing a pink shirt or a pink tie or anything like that. So I would say that just from those levels, like that perspective, how someone is displaying a sense of masculinity is is very different. Guys in London, I would notice, were very comfortable with wearing, let's say, um, items from Paul Smith, who you know I'm sure you guys are very familiar with, but um, or like Ted uh-huh. Baker, for example. And I'm not seeing a lot of that level of expression with like a bit more of a flora and a fauna. And I'm not really seeing that so much over here. And I think that the way that men over in the States sense or can define their sense of masculinity as it pertains to how they're dressing and their outward appearance is a more of a collegiate, a little bit more oversized look, streetwear, that kind of thing. Whereas in the UK, I noticed it was much more like Savile Row. And of course, again, not every guy represents that. But just when I would you know, take the tube, for example, that's what I would see. Every time I go back to London and I take the central line and I go past a bank, which is kind of like, you know, their downtown financial district, I would always, I always pick up on that. Yep. And it's very different to how the guys are, I, I think, display a sense of masculinity here. But on the flip side of that, what's really interesting to me is working with men over in the UK, I find it's harder to get them to open up uh, emotionally. Because the work that I do, I, I'm asking them what's happening in their life. And I find that that stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on mentality is really well and truly still 
firmly planted. Guys do not want to talk about their feelings over there. I still have to, you know, you know, kind of cajole my American clients to open up a little bit, but I do notice that if it's like a one-to-one session, which of course it always is, that my American male clients will open up about their feelings a little bit more readily. And that's really interesting. That's really interesting because, of course, from the surface perspective, there's a little bit more of a celebration of allowing oneself to, you know, potentially be a dandy aesthetically over in the UK or over in Europe, certainly. That's not maybe as celebrated in the United States unless you're maybe living in, in on the coast. But it is definitely harder um, to get guys to open up over in, I would say, not not clients that are like, in, like, I've got a client in Spain, and we'll talk very openly. But all of my British male clients, it's like, I have to, it mm. just takes a little bit longer, because they've not really been taught that it's okay to talk about their feelings, which again, of course, is what the show um, on a level is is really helping men to do. That's fascinating, I think, from that perspective. It certainly was fascinating for me moving to the UK, coming from Australia, where people were more open. There was still a, um, particularly when I was growing up, very fixed sense of Australian masculinity, and it was more Mm. conformist. I mean, what you, my view of a lot of the US is that there's a very strong, particularly amongst men, there's a very strong pressure put to conform to a very narrow band Mm -hmm. of societal norms. And if you stray outside, then that the white male Protestant will accuse you of some form of deviancy or perceived deviancy from that norm. And you can easily get ostracized from the group. Having an accent allowed me to do things like wear shirts that are pink. About a third of the shirts I have are of various shades of pink and purple, which I picked up in London. And I, I can't remember when I told you the story, but it was because I was working for this big management consulting firm and they, they went round and all of us sort of hard charging, a lot of us former military uh, or military background young men. And they said, you know, you're, you're a little bit too hard-edged. Have you considered like maybe softening how you appear by wearing pink-colored shirts? And we were all like going, okay. And so we didn't really change our behavior. We just started mm. wearing pink-colored shirts. And then people would react to us differently. And we were just like going, okay, this works. And we, we really didn't, I, I don't think, moderate our mm-hmm. behavior all that much, uh, except for the fact that the tailors on German Street suddenly were running out of pink-colored fabrics. Right. Um, <laughs> And then I went, this is great. And then uh, a couple of years after that, I went back to Australia and I was in Melbourne and I had uh, a charcoal gray chalk stripe suit wearing a pink shirt and I had a blue tie with pink polka dots on it. And I went into a big uh, big department store because I just found out that I thought I was going to be there for two weeks and I was actually going to be there for three months. So I needed to buy some new clothes. And the suit was one of the things that I had. So I was going around this department and the ladies at this uh, department store was like going, you must be British. I said, no, actually, I'm from Tasmania. And they went, wow, because no American, no Australian man would be seen dead wearing, you know, that color shirt. And I was just like going, right. it's just pink. You know, it's it's a nice pink. It goes well with the, with the blue of my tie and the, and the charcoal thing. And they went, yeah, but still no, you know, because pink was a, a gay color. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I never saw that as being an issue, albeit you could get picked on, but then by that stage, I was big enough and nasty enough not to bother about that. But for a lot of men, that element of being judged and picked on was meaning that, that okay, I've got to conform or just wear ill-fitting clothes because everyone else is wearing ill-fitting clothes because otherwise I'll be criticized. How, how much do you think that comes across in the interior design as well? You know, I think that it... It definitely depends on the client. I do think you're right. This this desire or what I suppose is almost like a survival instinct on a level, really, this this desire to conform, to not stray too much from the male herd, so to speak. I don't think I've been able to convince a guy just yet to paint any of his walls pink, for example, even though I love I love these kind of like millennial pink colors. And I think they can actually be totally masculine um, with other materials that really toughen up the space. But I do think that, yeah, it is a lot of the questions that I will get, for example, will will be from like a client will say, oh, well, you know, my my friend, my male friend told me that I should I should do this. What do you think? And 
I wouldn't say it's overwhelmingly the majority of the time I will disagree, but there are definitely, I'd say two thirds of the time, there are these kind of like shaking my head moments going, no, why, why would you do this? I mean, why would you just go blindly along with the advice that your friend is telling you who does not live in this place, does not live your life, does not know how you're behaving every day, what your schedule is every day, interacting with your space every day. I do feel like there is that sense of conformity, but the more I help guys to realize why we're making the choices or I'm helping them to make the choices within their space that are for them, then they start to draw this sense of connection. Oh, I don't have to conform. Oh, I don't have to compare. I don't have to compete. My home doesn't have to be this um, status symbol, so to speak. It only has to be a status symbol for how I feel like I'm coming home and arriving, so to speak. I do see it. Whereas like female clients, those conversations just are not coming about. I would say. So yeah, there's that male conformity that is still very alive and strong. So can I, can I just say that I, mm. I would totally paint a feature wall behind my bed like a damask sort of rose, mm-hmm. dusty pink. Yeah. I think that would be fantastic. It'd be beautiful. And just going back to the layer of seduction thing, which I'm trying to get you know, listeners to start thinking about, creating that i think it would be because i've got i've got a um a french made cast iron bed frame that i've brought all the way from london um along with my couch and i'm just thinking of the contrast between like the rose and then the dark iron and the iron work yeah. i just think that would be a phenomenal thing so thank you for that suggestion yeah and i and, that, and that's exactly what i'd be saying too yeah I think it would be perfect in New Orleans, Liam. I'm picturing you with like the the traditional champagne oh, glass, the yeah. wide, the very wide one, and you're down in New Orleans. Oh and man, you've got that the weather, and you've got just that those big huge windows. Oh, that's that what I'm thinking. So I've got a four poster bed, uh, an iron four poster bed in New Orleans, and that wall, a rose pink, that could look really good. Be beautiful, and I, I think you really hit the nail on the head. The dusty pink. Yeah, the dusty pink. Mm-hmm. Oh, because it's a um, uh, it's an eighteen fifty two building, and I've got the second floor with the with the balcony out onto the street that Wes is talking about. So, okay, I- I'm I'm tired of talking about me. Why don't you all talk about me for a bit? No, only joking. Um, I-, I warned you that this is a passion topic of yourself. Um, uh, anyway, back on track. And- <laughs> Funny, oh, but no. we love you, Liam. We um, love you. <laughs> no, and it's true. And, and just to, to vouch for Liam, he is actually my first introduction to how all of these things could be done well. So, for the listener, I can vouch that Liam is very sincere about this and very intentional. And and we do love this topic. Uh, we we like to talk about shoes and suits and all these sorts of things. But for my own experience, you know, the the home is or has been for a very long time until recently until well you know finding my dandy lady was an afterthought and and so the things that you're doing bethany when when i hear your show title arrived it's a brilliant name a brilliant title for that because when you ask the question why are men lost you know they don't have a base you know there's no anchor mm-hmm. or there's no home there's no place for them to arrive at and to have this destination and to let people start thinking about the home as the place where they can arrive and build upon the self is very inspiring. And so, you know, thank you for your podcast. It's, it's brilliant. I'm a huge fan of it. Oh, I wanted to you. ask, oh, <laughs> you're welcome. I, I wanted to ask for those you have worked with, have you had the chance to hear how that has helped them? Or is there anything that you would be able to share? Yes. We've been talking in all these, I think, abstract terms, but some of the things, some of the more pragmatic results that I'm seeing with clients are time savings. Even though they're investing in their home, there's actually, in some instances, you know, we're saving the client a lot of money because I'm encouraging him to actually invest in a nice sofa that like Liam, you're saying you've had this sofa from for however long now, and it's just sort of followed you everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than, you know, constantly picking up furniture that is going to last them a couple of years tops. So, you know, there's things like that. But I, you know, for example, like, well, here's, here's an example. I had a client who one of his big pain points was coming home at his weekend or when he would wake up on his Saturday morning, his flat was inevitably a bit dirty. It was a bit dusty. It was a bit dirty. And I said, well, look, how are you behaving in the space? How are you, are you taking off your shoes 
at the door. And he said, oh, no, I, you know, I hadn't even thought about doing that. And I said, well, look, get yourself a beautiful runner. Have your doormat, but then leave your shoes at the door and have a beautiful runner and have that act as a visual cue. So if we want to think about, I, I think about things like home habits, for example, when I work with clients and how can I help them develop better home habits that save them time, save them money, save them you know, mental energy. So if we think about it in terms of like James Clear and Atomic Habits, he'll talk about visual cues. So I said, look, get a beautiful runner at your front door that acts as this visual cue for you to take your shoes off and incentivize you to take your shoes off. And you will notice that just that alone will cut down your cleaning time. So about six weeks on, we had a follow-up session and I said, how's it going? And he said, oh my God, it's remarkable. I can't believe how much more time I'm now spending instead of cleaning at my weekend. I'm now spending reading or I'm now spending catching up on other things that I haven't been able to do for a while. So that's one sort of, I, I would say, really solid example of just little tweaks. Sometimes these little wins really do help guys, you know, win the day, win their weekend back. And the other thing that I notice with clients is when we think about, so for example, if they're thinking about like maybe they've moved to a new city and they haven't really met many people yet. One of the things I'll say to clients is, well, get yourself, of course, if they have the space for it, so get yourself a nice dining table and chairs and it will incentivize you to host people and to branch out and to meet people. And sometimes it's things like that that will actually help them you know, kick their butt in gear to take on these other aspects in, in their life. It's really, what's so interesting for me is I think when one is when in their own profession, it's like, I look at these things and to me, they're obvious because I've been doing this for a very long time. But what is so rewarding for me is to watch this transformation for my clients of feeling confused, feeling in doubt, feeling like there's something that's just not really working within their home or within their life. And it can, like I was saying, it can be very easy. Um, it can be like, they don't have enough time to do something at the weekend to, I want to develop better friendships. And watching that level of transformation is so rewarding and so fascinating for me. So that's, I think those are a couple of examples of how I help a client go from this point of confusion or exhaustion or, you know, time saving or from feeling like they have a lack of time to actually providing them um, and empowering them to make these decisions and think more holistically and think more about it in terms of a process. One of the things that, that, I'm really interested in, and we didn't get to cover on, on your show, which is you just had a conversation with me that's inspired me to suddenly start thinking mm. about painting walls pink. What's your process for working with clients to generate that level of inspiration in them? It always starts out with making sure that we have a good report or there's what I feel like we could have a good report because at the end of the day, if my client doesn't trust me to suggest, you know, something like a pink wall to him. He's not he's not going to take on that change <laughs> for himself. So I my process always begins with going on a bit of a fact-finding mission with that client, the you know, scheduling a, a call that's lasts about 15-20 minutes just to kind of find out a little bit more about what they're hoping for in this space. I certainly don't get too personal with any questions right away, but once I feel like they are the type of client that is really after a level of change and they're not just looking for something that's more service. But I mean, typically I think my clients come to me because they know that I that my process is maybe perhaps a little bit different than a lot of interior designers out there. Um, but once I feel like that rapport could be there and could develop, then I the first sort of session, uh, so to speak, is to then actually to dive a little bit deeper and have that conversation and ask them those questions about what's happening in your life right now. What was that impetus that led this guy to reach out to me. What's working? What's not working? What do they want to change? What do they want to improve? It's funny. I used to I used to do a workbook because I I have a I'm in a business coaching program myself, and I get month monthly workbooks. And for me, they've been really wonderful. And I think that part of it is just when you are engaged in a handwritten process, as in um, when you're answering questions and you're literally writing in with a pen and paper your answers out. There's something that really happens cognitively that helps you draw these connections. But what I was noticing with my clients is that it almost just felt like homework. And I had a client say, look, I'm never going to do that workbook. But if you just go through this with me, I will totally be able to answer your questions. And so I've, I've moved more into that model because I found it helped 
to be not, let's say, as a therapy session, but it really did help clients draw these connections of why it is that they need to work on their space. Why does they need to think about their lives a little bit more holistically or think about what's actually not working for them and shine a light on it? So that's always the first step of it. And then what we do is we create, based on what it is they feel like what we've been able to sort of enunciate as their problem areas, um, both in their space and, and areas of growth that they'd like to receive in their life, then what we do is we create a prioritized action plan for their space. And I will help guide clients in that regard. And they receive an action plan that we've worked on. And then they go off and they will start filing off these the action steps that it's going to take. And we then will have a follow-up maybe a few weeks later, depending upon their schedule. And I'll check in with them because what I do notice is that guys, a lot of the time, like like all of us, right? We have the best of intentions. We really do want to make changes within our space or within our lives, but sometimes we need a bit of a kick in the butt a few weeks in. So it might be that I work with a guy and we're doing this follow-up session and one of the like one of the top three action steps as the priority, you know, has not been ticked off, so to speak, in whatever form that might be. And so I'll say, well, look, what's happening here? Do we need to reassess this? Do we need to re- reassess the priority? How, did we not get it right from the beginning? Sometimes it's when you do the follow-up that yields the really most interesting results because it's in that reassessment, if that makes sense, where I'll have a guy say, you know, I thought my priority for my space was this, or I thought my priority for my my relocation and my move right now was to, was this, but actually I'm finding that it's something else entirely. So that is, I suppose, a that's kind of the, the the process by which I I guide my clients into helping them create spaces that um, feel like they're theirs. I want to empower guys. I don't want guys to feel like they have to seek me out every time they want to make a design decision. It's how do I empower my clients to make these decisions on their own and always feel free to contact me and, and to get a bit of guidance as and when they need it. That last part that you said right there, that realization that at the outset, you had one intention mm-hmm. or, or a certain priority, but then after completing a project or a task, the self-reflection part, I think is maybe glossed over, but it's so important to look back and reflect and take note of what does it feel like for you? Did you, did you find the success that you were looking for? Or do you suddenly realize that, oh my gosh, I hadn't even thought about blank and mm-hmm. now that I have completed these other things, I now realize, oh, this is the thing that I, I really needed. Right. That's so important. What are some of the like the top tips or like the simple starting points that you think or have seen men take on their first journey to creating their own space? Some of the some of the top tip or like the first few steps that like if they're doing this on their own? Yeah. Yeah, simple things that they can do themselves. So what I would always say to a guy who's really just just starting to embark on this journey is to think about decluttering. And I mean that figuratively, I mean that physically. How can one declutter physically? How can they declutter their space? How can they declutter their mind? Nine and a half times out of 10, the majority of us, men or women, it's not that we don't have enough stuff. Although Wes, I appreciate you were mentioning a time where you, I think you had like a bed and a bowflex. <laughs> yeah, bowflex. Right, right. So unless you're like Wes, and I don't know what was that like 1995 or something. I would say the the vast majority of clients just have or of people just have too much stuff, and that is one thing that you can do right now that is going to cost you zero dollars is to get rid of the superfluous stuff that maybe you're holding on to, going back to that aspect of what you were saying earlier, Liam, is to just get rid of the stuff that is no longer serving you. It doesn't tell a story. It doesn't help you tell your story. It's maybe not something that you want to bring into your future. I like to think about like past self, future self, and current self. And sometimes when I'm struggling with, do I want to keep this? I always think, well, does my future self see this in the space? And inevitably, I can always say yes or no. So decluttering, because once you can get a space that, or once your space feels like it's devoid of the extraneous crap that you really don't need, 
then you can actually really start to focus your mind and focus your habit building within your space towards a home that does feel like yours. But if you come home every single day and there's piles of papers everywhere and your clothes aren't hung up or you just have too many things around, it's way too hard to do any of that hard work on yourself or in the space itself. So declutter always. Um, The second thing that I would say So the things that you do bring into your world then after you declutter have to hold personal value for you. So put artwork up on your walls, you know, get bed linens that really feel wonderful. Like everything should have an impact on you. And I think about that from this, like, think about everything as a sensory experience, whether it's the candles you bring into your home, whether it's your bed linens, whether it's the art on your walls, how can you think about your space as this sensory experience that really helps buoy you up and tell your story? Because like we've been saying this whole time, then when you do bring people in or even when you come home to a space that's solely yours, you feel good and you feel like your most authentic self. So those are just really two quick tips that I would say. One, declutter and two, really get cognizant on what you're then bringing into the space. And three, don't be afraid to bring in pink. That's the other thing I would say. doesn't have to be fuchsia. (laughs) It can be this beautiful dusty rose color. But basically, don't feel afraid to experiment with a bit of color. If we're going to experiment with color in our suits, we can experiment with color in a throw cushion or in a piece of art. It doesn't have to be a huge commitment. I want to make sure that... um... Aside from my friend Kyle, who I'm going to force to work with you, Bethany, because uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he needs it. Hi, Kyle. Uh, the, uh, you have, of course, the podcast, which we talked about, but th- this is your business that you just were mentioning. How can people contact you uh, if they're listening right now and be like, ooh, me, me, I want to work with you. How would someone go about contacting you to start working with you? I would love to hear from your listenership. The easiest way to contact me is probably a couple different ways. One would be my website, which is atelierreed.com. And that's A-T-E-L-I-E-R-W-R-E-D-E.com. Otherwise, they can reach out to me at my Instagram, which I'm probably on way too often. My handle is atelierreed, all one word. Yeah, like I said, they can always book a call and we can do a bit of an intake and Really, I'm I'm more interested in finding out if I'm a proper fit for for anyone mm-hmm. um, who's out there that might be interested in, in in working with me. So it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's work. It's a lot of self reflection and self awareness work, but it's a lot of fun too and very rewarding. I think all of the best projects related to design have to be fun if it's to deal with something personal and creating a personal space. If it's not fun. Do you want to come home to something that feels like you're walking into a dentist surgery? That is, unless, of course, you're a dentist and you love what you do. Right. For listeners of your podcast, I have a special promotion, which I'm offering. If you go to atelierreed.com slash dandy, you can book a one-to-one session with me at a special rate. So instead of doing more of a 15-minute general call, what we will do is we'll answer some questions and I will help you guys figure out one area in your home that within the hour, by the end of that hour, we can have an action plan sorted for you. So I'm really excited about that. That's a new offering and I'm really excited to bring it to your listeners. Hooray. Yeah. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for doing that for our listeners. I, I hope they take advantage of that. I know that uh, I can think of so many that should. <laughs> <laughs> Bethany, thank you so much for appearing on this episode. And uh, I, I truly hope that our listeners get value from this. Just your approach, uh, your sincerity, your sense of humor. It's been such a joy. We had mentioned on your show that you have a stack of oh, books yes. uh, that you've been meaning to get to. As we uh, wrap up here on this episode, we want to go around and kind of just share what we've been reading. Mm-hmm. What have you been able to tackle from that stack? What are you reading right now? So right now I am reading a book. It's amazing. It's called The Source, The Secrets of the Universe, The Science of the Brain. And it's by a neuroscientist and executive coach, Dr. Tara Swart, S-W-A-R-T, who's based in London. And it is all about how the brain actually will create new pathways based on how we think. And it's it gets it's a little bit woo-woo insofar as 
it examines the law of attraction, you know, what you think you so you know, attract into your life, which is very controversial. I appreciate. And I've always been one of those people that's thought it's like a bunch of BS. And then I found this book and I thought, okay, well, look, if you can actually show me proof that something actually happens in the brain when we think about things in a certain way to draw them into our lives, like I will get behind this concept. And it's fascinating. So that's a book that I would recommend for any guys out there who might be actually feeling a bit stuck, for example, and thinking about how they might be stuck, how their thinking is maybe not serving them. So that's my, that's a book that I'm getting through right now. Wonderful. That sounds fantastic. Uh, Liam, what about you? Uh, Have you picked a new one up yet from, from when last we recorded? So, so yeah, in passing, I've been, and I still haven't finished Seven Eves. It requires a bit of mental concentration. The the new thing on my reading list is the, uh, I think it's about 700 pages of the new federal and DOD cybersecurity policy and standards, um, which is... I'm is sorry, it, I just fell asleep. What did you just <laughs> say? <laughs> I, I, I know. It's sitting in our uh, head of contracts office and she keeps bringing it out and dropping it on the desk to go, Have are we compliant with this yet? And I keep going, ugh. So when I come home, my brain is kind of a little bit fried. I have been reading through all of Charles Stross's The Laundry Files novels because I find them highly amusing. I got a real feeling that if I didn't actually meet him, I know he was somewhere and working in London the same time I was and just the way he writes, it reminds me of someone. I love them. They're, they're very funny. And then as, as a difference, I just started reading The Parasol Protectorate by Gail Carriger, who is a cyberpunk author who all of uh, one of Emily's friends had all of her books. And I thought, never heard of this. This, this looks like a bit of light fun. So it's cyberpunk meets like werewolves and vampires in 18th century London, um, which is actually very funny. So nothing to do with popular culture or psychology or anything serious, just two good escapist uh, novels uh, that Charles Stross is, is more horror sci-fi, I guess. And then the parasol protector, it is sort of like, like cyberpunk fantasy. So that's what I do to, make my brain become as close to jelly as I, as I possibly can and, and turn off to go to sleep. Well, it's important. I completely, I'm, I'm on a similar path because uh, as I've talked about many times uh, recently, reading through Liz Plank's book mm-hmm. and mm. it's wonderful. And, but there's, it's important to take time for entertainment as well. Uh, her book is very funny and it's nice to read, but I, Recently went to the bookstore to pick up Natty's book, oh, which I'm picking up tomorrow. Yes. So I'm really excited. Yes. Uh, his second we are one, dandy. Uh, We Are Dandy. Yes. So that's, I'll have that in my hand. Oh, man. While, you know, so I'm excited about that. Beautiful. But totally going to have to order that. <laughs> while I was at the bookstore, local bookstore, to get that ordered, uh, I was wandering around and I thought, you know, I have several suits named for titles that this woman has written. So I picked up a copy of Death on the Nile mm. by Agatha Christie. And I'm thoroughly enjoying as an entertainment book just to to get in and, and listen with the language and of course, you know, the mystery and, and the murder and and uh it's it's just a nice companion to okay, be a better person, be a better person, right. be a better person. You know, but also just relax. Right. <laughs> right. Try to sleep at night. Uh, also, be an interesting person and interesting people. Yeah. Exactly. And it's so much fun. And and it is an intelligent book as well, you know, so it's it's a fun read. So uh, I really am excited to, to get my hands on Natty's book. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, please listen to Arrived and Nathaniel Adams, yes. right? Nathaniel Epis- uh, Adams. Yes. Episode 13. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, he's uh, he's a uh, I'd say a traditional. So the dandies dandy. are now going to be stalking him. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> he's. I mean, he's so switched on and so intelligent and so thoroughly studied when it comes to dandyism in, I suppose, more of a uh, traditional sense. Whereas I love you, I love the modern dandy. I love what you guys are doing with the modern dandies. So <laughs> good book for sure. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, listener. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach us. Uh, oops, you can do it. Hold on. I usually do this better. <laughs> I'm so distracted. 
Do you have questions or comments? You can reach us at themoderndandy.life. See, if I don't put on that weird voice, I can't actually say the email address. <laughs> us at themoderndandy.life. Ta-da! Ta-da! What a great episode. Yay!